Jens, welcome to the fourth episode of Product Market Fit. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Do you mind giving us a bit of an intro about who you are, what you do? Sure. So I live in Berlin. I run in one of Europe's most active angel funds. It's called Angel Invest, where we make about 50 um, early stage investments in technology companies every year. And then we coach the teams for about 12 months after we write the initial check in very regular calls and talk to them about the issues that they have. Quite a lot of that tends to be around product market fit. Amazing. That's actually why I wanted to have you on board. Uh, and for those listening, Jens is actually an investor in my company, Index Health, um, and he's coached and helped me a lot through, um, through product market fit. Um, sounds weird talking to you in third person. Anyways, so how would you define... Product market fit. I mean, you've seen, you know, at this point, hundreds of companies. So you know what works, you know what doesn't work. Yeah. So pro product market fit happens in, in sort of different stages. I think what characterizes, you know, you know, each one is that when you have customers who have foam at the mouth and who say, oh, okay, this is super exciting. Where is it in the early stage? Or they use it and say, that's amazing. How much can I pay for it? Or when they then hear about it, once you have defined your category, they just say, oh, that sounds great. And then as you're scaling marketing and sales, where you have such good response because of your positioning, messaging, and so forth, that people just really flock towards it, right? So it's effectively, it's, it's, a, it's a sweet spot where customers respond very, very favorably to your product. How would you put numbers behind that for, let's say, uh, you know, a B2B SaaS, let's say, or, you know, B2C? Yeah, I think when in, in sort of the rule of thumb is that when you have strong product market fit, you convert somewhere between 20 to um, 30, maybe more percent of your qualified leads into paying customers. And the, I mean, it's effectively, it's a question of the calibration. If you're converting a much higher percentage, then you either have incredibly strong product market fit or your lead selection tends to be too constrained, right? So you're letting too many, too, you're filtering out too many potential leads before they get to talk to the sales team. So it's, it's but the, you know, the rule of thumb is, is, has always been between 20 to 30% of your qualified leads, meaning people whom you've had a demo with as a, you know, as an enterprise, as an account executive, um, if you can convert that percentage into into paying customers, then then the company is is probably on track. So, so you and I have obviously worked together um, quite a bit. Um, yeah. So, so just looking at like, like what would you say are some things that you're seeing? Because you know, getting to the point where you have some conversion, let's say ten percent, you know, yeah. trial, whatever, maybe is like already a big milestone. Um, what is kind of like what's happening before that, before even getting there? Like, what are you seeing around companies? Like, what does iteration process look like? The flow, you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we, we can we can use your company as an example if you like. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So so initially, when you started, you, I mean, you you had a certain concept of what you wanted to do, and then you went into the market you built a minimum solution that, that you could actually really test with customers. And then you started talking to a lot of customers. And 
Um, and then what was the resonance of that? I mean, you found some resonance, but it, it wasn't really, it, it, it didn't really click with the majority, with the vast majority of people that you were talking to, right? Yeah, it's true. At first, people thought we were an app. They didn't really get it. They wanted to pay like 10 bucks per month for it. Yeah, the messaging, getting the messaging right was, was a nightmare. Yeah, and, and it's, so it's a function of you, you need to, I mean, even if you have an idea of these are the people I would like to, to, to target, this is their problem, um, this is the job to be done, this is the value proposition that I have for them, that is sort of the first phase. Right, so you're really just trying to identify what's the job to be done for the customer. How do I have to articulate my value proposition in such a way that that it really clicks? And you will use, you will just experiment with with different types of words, different sentences, until you get to the point where where you get resonance. Yeah, and then you it's like, oh, I have to say it like this, and if I say it like that, that turns people off. And then you post rationalize, and you realize, oh this phrase phrase leads them down this path of thinking versus the other that leads them down this path of thinking. That's one aspect of it. But the much more important thing is to really think through what's actually the job to be done for these customers. What's the problem? What's the job to be done? What's my value proposition? Yeah, very frequently, people do this very sloppily and very superficially, and then they have very poor resonance because they have actually not understood the, the job to be done. Yeah. And then in the second step, you then build a product that then delivers that which if you have defined the previous bit correctly, this is sort of where the genius comes in. There is very little for investors to do at that point because how you shape the product is sort of it's an act of creation. Yeah? And the feedback from customers at that point is pretty much worthless. It's really the, the internal skill of the team to, to, to come up with something that really does the job and delivers the value proposition. And if you do this right, then, you, you know, the people will say oh my god that's amazing i really love it yeah and then you come to the third bit where where you sort of iterated a lot which is category definition yeah um just looking at what you said i found that interesting like you're right the investor nor the customer can actually help um particularly the customer and in our case they didn't know what to call it, what to, how to identify it or categorize it. And yeah. it really was just having consistent tests and talking to people. Yeah. And then we found some sort of middle ground, like what is the, the theme that kind of what's the reoccurring message that we're getting from multiple people. But I agree, it's actually, and that's kind of the scary part. And I feel like it could throw some, some, some people off, but it, it's, it's a bit hard to even listen to customers at that point when, when you're defining a whole new category. Yeah, so it's, 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 that's that. The other thing is that the problem that you have initially is when you have no users or no customers who are actively using the product, the feedback that you tend to get from non-customers tends to be very, very diverse. It's, there are so many, different, so many different things that they say. It's very, very difficult to synthesize that into something that really means anything. Now, once you're at the point where you have a few dozen paying customers and you ask them for feedback, you tend to get very consistent feedback around the features that they're missing or the things they would like to be able to do that they can't and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, um, and you know, at that point, the iteration process becomes a lot easier. Initially, it's far more you need to pick something, say, okay, that's probably it and hope that you've picked correctly. And then if you have, then you will actually get users and then you will get much more consistent feedback. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that then I... will then enable the, the, the category definition later on. Yeah, that's spot on. Us getting those initial 10, 20 customers helped us mold the message. You know, for them, the recurring topic, when we asked them in a survey, you know, whether it was, whether it was just sending a form or, or speaking to them, they would always iterate like that it's personalized, it, it defines the root cause, right? Um, yep. at, at Penta, after you know interviewing a couple hundred customers, they all said fast and easy business banking, quite literally the same words even. And so once we put this on our website and changed our messaging in both companies, things just resonated much easier and then you know, lead to trial conversion turned great. <laughs> um, and so that's what I wanna ask. Um, and I feel like, so I spoke also with, with Mikhail from Innovo and he actually also said or, or took that metric as well that lead to trial conversion is one of the most important metrics. Um, is that the only metric that, that you'd focus on in the beginning? I mean, no, I mean, this is actually something that, that you really focus on later. Um, because initially, all of those numbers will be totally off. So, I mean, the most important thing initially is that people, that you make customers productive with the product. And, and, and you, you see that because people are using the product um, consistently and in the way in which it makes them productive. And you can measure that. And then when you talk to them, they also say that. That's the most important thing initially, because initially you're, you're trying to just, I mean, so product market fit really happens in, in, in four stages, right? So the first one is you identify somebody who you think has a problem and then you pitch them your value proposition towards that. And then you look for resonance, whether they really say, oh, wow, that's really something I would like to get done. The second step is you build the product that does this job and delivers that value proposition and you hope you've built it right so it really does that. And at that point, you know, actions need to follow words, meaning the customers really need to use it and they need to really derive value from it. And the third bit is you then, the value that you've created, this interplay between customer and product, you then put that into words and that's called category definition and, and, and positioning and messaging and all everything that goes with that. And, and when you do that correctly, you actually get, if you've done it right, because you've really crystallized out what the true pain of the customer is, and you really have identified what the, what the job to be done is, and you can fix it and put that into words. And at that point, you really get very positive response from potential customers, even if they haven't used your product, just because you can articulate their problem and the potential solution so well. That then translates in the fourth bit, which is sort of, in a sense, the final bit. You then need to build a scalable engine, marketing sales customer success engine, that ramps up and delivers more and more customers at increasing scale, which is sort of where you are right now with your company. Yeah, so you're in phase four. Um, and um, at that phase, you, you've then focused on, okay, so how much do leads cost me? Um, how long does it take to generate them? With what velocity can I generate them? Once I've got a qualified lead with, you know, what's my conversion rate from there to close customer? What's my sales cycle time? What does that actually mean for customer acquisition cost at the end? Um, and, and how can I basically take the prototype of what I've built, identify the initial segments and identify later segments, what is necessary to roll out into them and so on and so forth. And at that point, you start to really look at unit economics and then this 20% figure comes into play. Initially, in the first phases, 
this is irrelevant. You're just trying to make a few, you know, a few dozen customers productive who hopefully love your product and use it all the time. What did you mean by the twenty percent? It's if when you when it, when you have a twenty percent conversion rate from qualified lead to closed customer. This is sort of a metric that you use when you're building your marketing and sales engine. Yeah, understood. So let's yeah. dig deep. Let's dig deeper into kind of channel diversification and CAC. Um, how would you approach that? How do you how do you think about that when looking for product market fit? Um, I mean, there are sort of traditional, you know, metrics that people say, oh, it needs to be this multiple CAC to uh, to LTV or something like that. What I've personally found is that if the the CAC payback is is long, it doesn't really matter what the LTV is. I mean, let's just say if you're a lifetime value if a customer stayed with you consistently for 20 years and let's just say your customer acquisition costs gets recouped after year five i mean just as a thought experiment right sure sure it's extremely capital intensive to scale a business like that because the cash recoup happens so far in the future and and you're bleeding cash on the customer for years and years and years and years yeah and and that's that's just so and if you then try to to run a this is, and if you then try to scale a company like that aggressively then you have a we work it just collapses under the weight of the combined losses of all of those customers that you're uh, stacking on top of each other and and, and so this is this is and even <laughs> when you've raised 10 billion plus in capital, even that can't save you from this long, re, um, you know, recoup time when you when a company a customer actually becomes cash flow positive. Uh, certainly not. I mean, the model is functional, but it, you can't scale it as aggressively as they tried to do. So that's the limitation. So the, the way to think about this in a positive way is that the shorter the, the recoup time, the more aggressively you can scale your model. So if you have instant payback, so I have portfolio companies who whatever money they spend on customer acquisition, they get that back immediately when the customer, when any customer signs or when the, when on average, when the customer signs, let's maybe put it like that. Yeah. When you have a model like that, there is no financial constraint on how fast you can scale the company. There might be operational constraints, but there is from a financial model perspective, there is no constraint. That's obviously the optimum. Um, and, you know, the closer you can be to that, the better that is. I think practically everything where you recoup customer acquisition costs in a longer time period than 12 months is super difficult to scale aggressively. Everything that's shorter than six months is good. Everything that's shorter than three months is, is very good. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. At Index, we actually return the money within two to three months on average, um, kind of month over month. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, that's kind of... When we saw that benchmark after a couple of months, that, kind of, that, that got us really excited. But I remember speaking to one founder who was starting an insurance company, and he said his payback period was like 14 months, 18 months. And I was, and he was like, this is great. I'm like, what do you mean this is great? And he was like, yeah, but it's a long-term relationship. And I said the same thing to him. I said, you know, it's, it's super capital intensive to actually, to actually operate that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I couldn't it's, agree more. Yeah. So for, for these kind of businesses that might still be viable, but... I mean, the, sure. the logic is just when you model it out, um, you're losing cash for quite some time before the, before your cash flow positive on each customer. And don't forget, I mean, these are models. And typically, reality has a tendency to be worse than what the model says, right? So 
yeah. if, if the model says 18 months, then particularly when times turn a little sour right now, suddenly reality is three years and then, uh, you know, that's probably not particularly viable. Yeah, I, I like a lot what you said. Even if it, the payback period's like, like let's say the LTV is four years, but it takes you like, I don't know, or let's say 20 years, but five years. So it's kind of that one to four ratio or one to three, let's say that, that you know, a lot of VCs are talking about. It's still kind of like, you know, it's just way too long. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then how do you see channel diversification? Are you seeing, are you seeing founders in your portfolio focusing on one channel, multiple channels? Like what, is, like what is that path to finding, let's say those initial leads and customers look like? Um, you tend, well, this is maturity dependent. In the very early days, you typically don't have, okay, let me say this differently. Um, when you think about how many potential channels there are that you can use on the marketing side to, to generate leads for your company, you know, or visitors who, who come to your website or what, whatever it happens to be. There are a lot of different channels. Um, they tend to be very, very different from each other. And the people who are truly excellent at driving these different channels are very, very different from each other from a character perspective, if you like, from, from a specialization perspective. And, you know, as an example, so somebody who is very, very good at, at search engine marketing is probably not good in uh say uh in in pr and and we might also not be good at um at sort of organic social definitely not because of the very very different disciplines so the reality is practically what you find is that the founders of early stage companies they just happen to be good at one or two channels that perform and then they lean into them and then as the company grows and matures you know they have more capital they have more money so that they can invest in in developing different channels because they have the money to do that right but I, i've never seen an early stage sort of like a founder-led company that is excellent at five or six different marketing channels at the same time that typically never happens because the the, the founders don't have it within them to actually get that done yes but on we, we use uh, google and facebook and and word of mouth with, with Facebook and word of mouth being like 80, 90% of our yeah. acquisition today. Um, same was true. Same was true at, at, at Penta. It was affiliate marketing and, and organic. So yeah, even, even at scale, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and looking towards, so let's say somebody, you know, gets that phase that, you know, they, they cross or, or they think they're crossing product market fit. Is there, there, is there a certain revenue figure you're, you're, you're seeing? Is it like, you know, 20 K in MRR? Is it 50, hundred K? Like, you know, yeah, what's think, that, what's that benchmark? Yeah. No, I don't think you can define it like that at all. Um, so I've got a company in my portfolio that's doing over half a million in ARR. Um, and, and the, the 90% of that comes from one very large customer. And I think this company does not, I mean, it's one large enterprise customer, right? So, um, and, and they obviously have enough product there to dislodge or to be, to close that larger customer that they have ramped up to from a much, much smaller number. So they certainly have product market fit um, to a certain extent. Now they need to widen that and attract other customers and also similar customers, similar in that size, you know, close them initially 
deliver and then upsell them into a much larger contract. And it only is when you've done that with several customers that one could say, ah, okay, so now they really have product, like real product market, full product market fit because they have successfully done this now for enough customers that we can say that this is valid for a certain market segment and not just for one specific customer, which, you know, let's just say if you sold a consulting project to one large customer and you build them some really nice software, that means that you're a good consultant, but that has nothing to do with product market fit, right? So that then tends to be the distinction. So, but then at the same time, if you take a consumer company, so I've got companies that are doing way less than, um, you know, even less than 100K ARR. And I would say that they have better product market fit with their market. It just happens to be that the uh, average check size in that market is much, much smaller. So when a Series A investor would want to invest, let's say, I think that's interesting. So let's say the companies that are maybe direct-to-consumer, they're doing 20, 30K in ARR or whatever it may be, right? Um, but these guys are not, like, they're not sufficient for a Series A investment. Um, like, what does the ramp-up period essentially look like? You know what I mean? Especially in, like, times like today. Like, financially. Ramp up like, with regards to what kind of ramp-up? So ramp up in terms of ARR, but also in terms of, you know, the burn multiple, how much people are spending, being capital efficient. Um, like, how do people get to Series A at that point? Because I feel like the Series A mark is the mark where it's like, I've gotten product market fit, it's proven, therefore I'm going to raise up, you know, 10 million Series A, whatever it is. I, uh, th hypothetically, this, this could be true, or it maybe even it should be true, but the reality is it's never quite like that. Um, so... The good Series A investors tend to invest when they think everything lines up. So they can see that this company has a product. It's in the market. This, they find this market very compelling. Um, and it, the, it is obvious from customer interviews that this product is really delivering the value proposition. Um, and the company has the potential to really scale that. At that point, um, investors are typically happy to invest larger sums into a company irrespective of what you whether you call it a large seed round or a series a round or what, whatever you call that yeah are there any that, that's what that's what investors are looking for and i see uh, i mean right now it is very very challenging to raise larger rounds any larger round of funding they still get done they get done in a variety of different contexts there are companies that are raised that right now are you know, have several million ARR that are struggling to raise Series A for a variety of reasons. There are other companies that don't have that um, a little earlier in the year and who raised 20 million. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's just a, it's more a function of not product market fit. It's more, do you have investor <laughs> pitch fit, right? Do you have a product that that partner at that fund really loves and really wants to write a check into and really can see how this could could be materially impactful on their fund. I think that's basically what this is about. Can we dig? Can we dig a bit deeper? That's super interesting. Why would a company with, let's say, several million ARR not raise a round versus one that's doing, I don't know, one two hundred k, raise a great Series A? It's, everything is a function of yeah. Um, so there can be things. It, it, everything is a function of price. So. So, for example, right now you have quite a few companies in the market that have raised 
um, say, safes, if you're a Delaware C-Corp, um, with very high caps uh, and throughout last year, earlier this year, and so forth. And these caps are sort of like, oh, my company is worth whatever it's worth, you know, 40 million, 60 million, 80 million, whatever it is. Yeah. And, um, but then you have, I don't know, uh, one or two million in ARR. And then investors come and say, yeah, you know, I'm happy to talk eight on 32 pre. Yeah. And then the founder, because that's sort of like they say, yeah, that's like a 20x your ARR multiple and given your growth rate and blah, we think this is a fair valuation in the current market conditions. And then the founders say, oh my God, yesterday my company was worth 60 million. Now it's only worth 32. That's ridiculous. I can't do that. And then they don't raise. So that's something that I see, you know, I've seen this several times in the, over the last few months, this kind of phenomenon. Um, it, it's um, it, That definitely exists versus other in founders who say, okay, you know, I've raised my last round was 3 million on a whatever, 12 million pre, and now I'm raising on a 30 something. So I'm doubling the share price. Happy days. Let's do it. So it's not just about whether investors are willing to give term sheets to companies. It's also whether companies are willing to accept term sheets from investors, right? Um, and what the conditions are around that. Now, if you've raised 5 million with saves and then suddenly these five, and maybe the term sheet isn't 30 million pre, maybe it's 20 or 25 million pre, and then these saves are squeezing into the pre-money with a discount, you can get diluted pretty heavily, right? And this is sort of from a cap table modeling perspective. It can be extremely painful for founders. This is also why certain deals don't get done right now. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's not just that, founders don't get offers but sometimes right now the offers that that they get are challenging for their cap tables and certainly you know also very challenging um emotionally yeah that's super ugly <laughs> um i'm happy i'm not raising right now um yeah that's, so why, we, that's why we suggested you raise in q2 which luckily you did you know yeah. so um and, and most of, of the companies, I mean, we have had almost everybody raise in the first half of this year for that reason. Because we was, as, as you know, we, I mean, we've talked about this several times. We, we thought this year was going to be very challenging. We expect next year to be very challenging. So we tried to get everybody funded super early in, the, in, in this year. And we, we've, we've gotten it done in, the, in, the, in a very large number of cases. So I'm... Um, Right now, I'm, I'm supporting, luckily, very, very few companies in fundraising. Yeah, we're actually making a lot of changes now to extend runway for 24 months. Um, because 24 months is always 24 minus 6, right? Because, you know, you, you, you can't ever be without 6 months of runway. So everything we're doing is kind of moving in that direction to really solidify product market fit, at least get through 2023 without having to even think about raising. Um, and so just moving into that topic, like, that's kind of like a final final section of this recording um any recommendations for you know like companies and founders looking for product market fit or like you know increasing revenues etc to get the series a going into 2023 yeah i think you know the the most important attribute of um a founder is that they need to be right if you're wrong in what you do nothing else will save you. So you need to be right. But the problem is um, you don't, you, I mean, you're not, you, you're not born right. I mean, you, you don't get born and then suddenly you know everything about <laughs> everything. 
you don't know who your customer is or whatever in the context of your company. You just don't know. So that therefore, the, the most important quality of a founder is their ability to iterate rapidly and with, you know, they don't dither for months and months and months. So you iterate quickly and decisively. If you want significant, if you want a significant difference from what you've done before, you need to make significant changes. Little changes very infrequently result in, you know, big results. So if you, if you tweak your product, don't expect that there is a massive change afterwards. The changes are either relatively significant or they're not. And if you have significant changes, then you might have significantly different results if you're looking for a significantly improved results. So one of your um, biggest qualities is that you iterate with everything very, very decisively. Yeah? All the time. And you don't stop. So... I encourage, I try to encourage that in every company that we back. When you then think about this in the context of next year, so let's just assume next year, the first half, certainly fundraising might be very, still very, very difficult. And we don't know how long difficult might last. It might last for all of next year and then into even the year after. Um, if you are not at the point where you are in control of your destiny, if you like, right? So you know you know exactly how to take money and to turn that into revenue at a, in a scalable way. Um, if you're not there, then so definitely before product market fit, then you should think, you know, you should not assume that there will be money there when you need it next year. It's, that's very, very dangerous because if bad things might happen and suddenly the fundraising window is not just partially closed, but it could be completely closed for three months. Suddenly everybody says, oh, I'm not investing right now. We've had this in the past, right? So in Q2 2020, it was almost impossible to get any fundraising done. Nobody wanted to talk to anyone. And I remember quite vividly, I had about 13 companies, some of which really needed cash and nobody wanted to talk to them. And and luckily, the fundraising window reopened in July that year. And then suddenly, actually, in Q3, everything that was of the right kind of flavor was super easy. And, and, and we didn't lose any companies then. But, you know, that can happen again, any time. So, so basically, if you, I mean, the, the best advice categorically is to say, unless you have significant product market fit, don't spend any significant money. Yeah, nail it and then scale it. Don't spend a lot of money before you've actually, before you really know what you're doing. And this is particularly true in hard times like uh, that we're living through right now. Yep, spot on. Um, yeah, like I said, we're 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 also looking to cut costs in every corner. So um, yeah, I think that is good advice going into 2023. Um, any other thoughts? I, I know you're a big reader. Uh, you've helped me with so many books. Any books that you would recommend to founders? Oh gosh! I mean, <laughs> top three, <laughs> top um, one. <laughs> yeah, the, the the number one book that that I think every founder should read, and very few have, or even when they find the book, they don't want to read it, is the Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve Blank. I read it three times. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then, yeah, I know. I recommend you read it for the second time or something like that, yeah. right? So, yeah. um, it is. 
the process of, of thinking through the steps that you go through when you're building a startup, it's incredibly useful. Um, but founders don't particularly latch onto that. The, the second book that I think every inexperienced manager should read is um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team uh, by Lencioni. I think this is sort of what I've learned is that it is impossible to turn people who have limited experience in managing into excellent managers. You can't it, becoming an excellent manager is a multi-year self-improvement process or multi-decade self-improvement process. But it is actually possible and quite easy to turn every manager or in, into a into a functional manager and every team into a functional team. And the book explains how that works really, really well. It's super easy to read. Every team that I give this to goes from dysfunctional to, you know, baseline functional, and it's never done any harm. Founders really like it. So this is a great book to, to read. And then um, a third book. I've recently found that the books on um, category definition tend to work quite well with founders. So that could be play bigger. Or it could be um, the category uh, um, uh, design toolkit. So th those are books, you know, they're by the, I think this, these people call themselves the Al Rise and stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I, I just read that. I read both those. Yep. Yeah. And this is, and the concept there is, it's all based on, on a book called Positioning by Al Rees that was published in the 70s, um, where, where they talked about something that Ogilvy realized years before which is that all these brains try to all these brands try to go into people's brains and there are more brands than there are words in the english language and, and the brain can't deal with all these made-up words all these brand names the, the brain the brain has got no place for them to go it doesn't work so what the brain does is a hack right it takes a few words it creates a, a three four word combination and then it attaches the name of a brand with that combination. And that these things then get sort of functionally fused. And, and therefore you have a defined category, which is these combination of words. It could be internet search. And then the name that goes with that is Google. So then internet search is Google and Google is internet search. Yeah. And if, as every startup should try to create and dominate a category, because once you're in people's brain and you're, brand is synonymous with that category then every single time when people think oh i should really think about buying a crm they will think salesforce first and then everything else second and that is that's really where you want to be as a founder and this is why these these books are useful because they explain how to do that in the context of a technology startup great um sounds good jens thanks a lot for your time any final any final comments You with me? This this podcast is about product market fit, right? And yeah. I think the most important thing is before you have it is to iterate quickly. And so what you need for that is is largely courage. Now what I what I see with uh, some teams is that they raise money from investors, then they try to find product market fit there is this tendency to say oh yeah i've raised uh, whatever a million dollars from these investors and i've promised them i would do this product for these customers in this way and then they're two months into it and they realize this is not going to work i was completely wrong 
And then they think, oh my God, I've raised all this money. Now I need to try and do right by my investors. I should, I have to try and make that work. And then they continue to work on this thing that's not working and they know it's not working. And look, the, the, the truth of the matter most certainly is that investors care about investing in companies that win. If your company is not winning, take the money that you have and either give it back to investors or change what you do. Because I promise you, I mean, half of all these sort of really valuable companies that I have invested over my entire career were total pivots, pivots from what they did before. Half of the others were partial pivots of what, what the founders did before. And there's a very small subset of where founders were really right completely from the start. This typically doesn't happen like that. So if you find that what you're doing isn't working, you know, have the courage to change it. Reduce the team back down to the founding team or a relevant set of people. Um, iterate on the new idea that you've got this, the second, the third, and, and try to find product market fit. Because if you can't find it, nothing else that you do matters because you can't progress. And no amount of I've seen companies burn through tens of millions of euros without product market fit. And trust me, the, the more money you have, the larger the team, the longer it takes and the harder it becomes to actually find product market fit because you're busy with hiring people, managing them, spending money, talking to your board, and you still don't have any product market fit. So what you want to do is just focus on that first. And if it doesn't work, change it, change it, change it, change it. Ah, something is working, lean into that, and then you raise lots of capital. That, that's really how it should be done. And that's actually in all the companies that have become huge in my portfolio, um, it all happened in that order. <laughs> so they first nailed it and then they scaled it. And, you know, next year in particular, put, put yourself, I, I would try to constrain myself on the capital expenditure side. I would try to stay mean, not overspend, try to find product market fit, crystallize it out, and then start scaling from there. I love that. I feel like, I always feel like founders put way too much importance kind of, oh, what does the investor think, this and that. It's like just focus on what the customer thinks and they're going to be very happy. <laughs> yeah. Look, if investors follow happy customers, yeah. but investors don't create happy customers with the cash that they're putting into companies. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, heard a, I heard a good quote from, I think it was, I think it was Jack Dorsey, but he was, he was quoting somebody, but he basically said that uh, investors won't make great companies, but they sure can ruin great companies. Um, <laughs> or it was a great board or something like that. <laughs> I found that funny, but it's like, yeah, I feel like a lot of people put too much emphasis. Oh, it's a tier one VC. They're going to help me become successful. And it's kind of like, they're not going to help you become successful. Your customers are. So yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly how, how you, what, what you do for your customers and then their willingness to give you money. That that's basically what will make you successful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even though I find, I find investors like you extremely helpful. I mean, we wouldn't be here today without, without you, obviously. Um, so that's not to negate the fact how important investors are. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all about the customer focus. Look, I mean, the, 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 the truth is that when you have a successful company, there will be many people who have contributed to it in different yeah. ways. Yeah. And obviously when something fails, it was nobody's fault. So, <laughs> so sure, sure. I think it's, it's, but it's, it's, I, I think of it this way when I, invest in a team in on day one or very shortly after um i because i'm i interact with the team relatively frequently and it's a small team 
you can actually have an impact. Whereas if I had the same interaction with a, with a company that's 100 people, think about it, the CEO has got contact with dozens of people throughout the week, just company internally. So one person who sits on the board, who meets them every two months or every three months or however frequently they work, this is a very small percentage input on, on the thinking time of a founder. Yeah? And obviously that person can say good things or bad things or whatever, but it's just a very small percentage of the overall input that a founder has. And so therefore the ability to impact the company tends to be very limited. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of, I try to set up my week where I'm speaking to at least, um, at least two, but most weeks up to five customers. So it's kind of one per day. Um, and that really helps me drive, drive direction. So it's kind of, there's two or three people within the company, people directly selling to customers, right? Or speaking to them. Obviously, you know, we have doctors, et cetera, et cetera, but it's kind of like, we have like a whole loop of customer feedback that, that I can then feed in. Um, and then get feedback from investors saying like, hey, look at this metric, think of this, think of that. This is what I'm seeing from my portfolio. So examples from your portfolio, for example, have helped me a lot um, actually iterate, you know. You don't need to so, learn every lesson yourself. It's, you, you can learn from other people. It's, it's definitely the, the faster and cheaper way to learn. Yeah. Sounds good. I guess that's about that. Um, thanks a lot for your time then. Thanks for having me, Lutko.